Welcome to the second of the podcast from our seminar workshop series, New Concepts, New Challenges, New Formats, Envisaging the Creative Work PhD in an African Research University. I'm Christo Doherty, and I'll be in dialogue with Thomas Pringle. Thomas is a Brown Presidential Fellow and PhD candidate with the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, USA. He's a graduate affiliate with the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society and he's held fellowships with the Sense Lab Montreal and the Digital Cultures Research Lab at Lefano University. The question we'll be exploring today is what are digital media aesthetics in the time of climate crisis? Welcome to what is our fourth dialogue in this Arts Research Africa series where we look at topics related to the creative work, the supervision and pursuit of creative work towards PhD here in the School of Arts. This is something of a warm-up to the Watershed Conference, which officially kicks off next Tuesday in the engineering, the atrium in the Chamber of Mines building. And in this dialogue, Thomas and I are going to be exploring the question of how computer models and forms of digital visualization have evolved or are evolving a new digital media aesthetics. And that aesthetics has, I think, a challenging and complex relationship with our understanding of climate crisis in the 21st century. Thomas, as I said, has come to WITS as part of the Watershed Conference on Art, Science and Elemental Politics in Southern Africa. And you can find the program of the conference and further information. It's all free, lots of things to participate in, art, scientific discourse, climate activism, walks through the, the watershed and it's on the WITS website www.wits.ac.za forward slash watershed and I'll be in dialogue with Thomas and I think you will know me and Christo Doherty from the WITS School of Arts. Thank you so much Christo and thank you to Lenore for the invitation and thank you to everyone at WITS for the generosity. I'm just so excited to be here. Thomas, I want to kick off and really to lead into your areas of research with a moment in the late 20th century. And that moment is 1968. And it's really a moment that a lot of commentators have recognized as a profound, even epistemic change in our modes of understanding subjectivity, humanist systems and technology. And that moment to me is very much encapsulated by two exhibitions in that year. And the one was at the ICA in London, curated by Jassia Brookart, and that was called Cybernetic Serendipity, and was probably the first major exhibition that tried to address the engagement between new technologies, particularly computer technologies, and art and consciousness. And in the same year, in New York City, we had the seminal eco-art exhibition featuring the work of the land artists Robert Smithson, Walter de Maria, James Turrell, amongst others. It was called Earthworks and it was held at the Duan Gallery in New York City. And those two events, the Cybernetic Serendipity and the Earthworks exhibition, really brought together two major trends of thinking. The one being cybernetics and the other being systems theory. 
And both cybernetics and systems theory were to go on and inform, of course, the ecological movement and much of what we understand as technological art and even conceptual art in the 20th century and really to start to impact more generally in the 21st century. I just want to quote from Marshall McLuhan, the theorist we both grappled with, and McLuhan's commenting on the, the image of the Earth, which was first suggested by the Sputnik, but was first visually captured in 1968. Mm -hmm. And that was of the Earth, the very famous blue marble photograph, which is the first time that human beings saw the Earth and saw that the Earth was really a very discrete element in the solar system and an infinitesimally tiny element in, in, the, in the larger cosmos. And McLuhan wrote, for the first time, the natural world was completely enclosed in a man-made container, the photograph. At that moment that the Earth went inside this new artifact, nature ended and ecology was born. Ecological thinking became inevitable as soon as the planet moved up into the status of a work of art. That's McLuhan. And I would put that together with a current of thought that's become very dominant, perhaps even hegemonic in the humanities. And of course, it's uh, the thinking of, of Michel Foucault. And at about the same time that these two exhibitions were taking place in London and New York, respectively, Foucault was putting the finishing touches to probably his, one of his great works, The Order of Things, Archaeology of Human Sciences, which appeared in French in 1970. The archaeology ends with these prophetic words. If these arrangements, and he's talking about the modes of thought that constituted humanism in the, in the 19th century, if these arrangements were to disappear as they appeared, if some event of which we can at the moment do no more than sense the possibility, without knowing either what its form will be or what it promises, were to cause them to crumble as the ground of classical thought did at the end of the 18th century, then one can certainly wager that man would be erased like a face drawn in sand at the edge of the sea. And by man, of course, Foucault means the man as constituted in, in humanist thought. But these developments that we've seen manifest in the two exhibitions represented, I think, a very fundamental dissolution of the concept of man and the replacement of man in systems theory by ecology, ecological systems, and in the understanding of technology, which really comes through cybernetics, in a way that I think is very much captured in the primary text of cybernetics, which was Norbert Wiener's text, and I think the title really echoes what Foucault was saying in, in 1970. The title of that first text in cybernetics is called Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. There we have, from an engineer and technologist, a complete disregard for that separation that always in humanist thought had separated mankind from environment, technology, and animals. And both animals, man, and technology become devices that are controlled through information. So, Thomas, how does this lead in the 60s to your work on cybernetics, 
prediction of climate control. Well, thank you so much. That's a wonderful constellation of concepts to kind of lead into this conversation. And maybe the place to start, though, is maybe just to go a little bit earlier and to sort of explain like how you get to that point where Wiener can kind of dissolve this... Um, these long-standing conceptions of differences between something like an organism and the environment, because that sort of helps us explain what happened in 1968 with these iconic images created by first a satellite and then second by the Apollo 8 mission. To tell the history of, you know, a system, which is, which is really the kind of undergirding concept here, this idea that you have things that are interrelated, um, that kind of have this networked cohesion you can start as early as thinking about how someone like Sigmund Freud was reading thermodynamic systems like physics to understand how the model of the mind worked, and this is back in early 20th century. And one of his students was the founder of ecosystem ecology, Arthur Lord Tansley. Tansley is his name. One of his patients, I should say, on Freud's couch in London. And you can already start to see this exchange of ideas where Freud's idea of the mind as being this kind of system of energy, of, of drives that are interrelating, you can see that idea take hold in how Tansley described the ecosystem as this interacting set of components between living and inert matter that sort of resolved in this idea of equilibrium, right? The, thing, the idea that between biotic and abiotic factors, you could kind of have this natural system that would regulate itself. It would be self-regulating. So you already, you know, beginning the 20th century had this idea of nature as being a, a system, and it kind of has this very unique intellectual history that oddly shares its origins with, um, with psychoanalysis, which isn't to say that determines it, because this concept really had a renovation after what happened with Wiener and systems engineering that comes out of World War II. And it, it's really important to kind of stress that with Wiener and his contemporary Claude Shannon, who were both working on in various aspects of information theory, Shannon was more interested in communication between, say, telegraph engineers, where he's trying to figure out how to get a message from point A to point B by reducing the amount of noise in the system. And so it was about calculating the amount of information that could, that could be predicted to make its way from point A to point B. And that was theorized to be most effective mathematically by using these ones and zeros, right? And that's where you get this idea of, of digital information. Wiener was working at, at roughly the same time in the same area in the, in the American Northeast during World War II. He was working for this guy named Warren Weaver, and, and they were developing anti-aircraft technology to help the Allied war effort. And like this idea is really rooted in World War II military technology. It's the other, this is one of the dominant ways that, that sort of the history of cybernetics is told. Although it's not encompassing of, of all of its histories. You had this idea of a kind of, you had a gunner, a gun, an enemy, and an enemy pilot that were all conceived to be as a part of the same system, that you could kind of think about them as being flat, this kind of flat idea of how you could use a predictor within the weapon to try and trace the kinds of patterns that you would notice in the enemy pilot. And then that kind of flatness would allow you to as if you could understand the four items as being a part of the same system, that you could more efficiently shoot down your targets. And so it was based in this, this moment of violence, which is important to highlight. And those devices didn't actually work, and I think 1941 when they were first being developed. But 
it really did give rise to this highly interdisciplinary set of meetings in New York where Shannon and Wiener and evolutionary biologists and psychologists, Gregory Bateson, yeah, um, these Macy conferences in New York, where this idea of information being, you know, the ones and zeros that could control the energy in a system became this kind of universal idea that could go between different disciplines. And so you had... Um, you had psychologists thinking about consciousness and sensory data as information that controlled, you know, the biology of the body, or you had anthropologists thinking about things like visual data in photography as being, you know, as a part of a kind of cultural system, or thinking about culture itself as, as information. And it was really this way of kind of rationalizing all of these interdisciplinary connections that were all very different fields, but if you if you look at the history one way, it was they all could sit down and have these conversations and use a shared lexicon to have these these discussions between different disciplines and sort of help themselves gain stature in their various disciplines and advanced theories. That reflecting on them, not all of these really panned out. But one of the most important and interesting connections here is you had this ecologist at Yale, G. Evelyn Hutchison, who would develop this idea of the ecosystem by starting to think about natural processes like gravity as being information, as being computational, as being the, some of the controlling factors for natural ecosystems. And so it was really about taking this idea of a computational system and then throwing it down on natural systems as an explanatory framework. It's a wonderful anecdote. Margaret Mead, right. the anthropologist, uh, she was at these, these cybernetic discussions. And uh, the first discussion she sat in on she was so enthralled by it and so excited that she actually broke a tooth and only realized it later that evening. It, she, she got out of the, you know, the seminar room where, where they were, were having the discussions. You know, such was the intensity of the, the interdisciplinary debate that was going on for the first time, yeah. I think. Yeah, and I mean, thinking about Bateson and Mead specifically, I mean, it's, it's important to say that it's not like this kind of thinking wasn't around before these meetings. I mean, there's a, a fabulous article by Ori Halpern, who she talks about the kind of origins of photographic ethnography that Bateson and Mead pioneered in the Balinese Highlands, and how they were already thinking about this kind of cybernetic rationality when, when they were abstracting cultural specificity from their ethnographic work at the time in a problematic way. And that, that predates, of course, the meeting at the Macy conferences. But just to highlight that it's like these were highly influential meetings, but it's not to say that they were determinate of, you know, there was a way in which a lot of this thinking was ongoing and then the meetings kind of happened and then you kind of had this official language that took hold that could, everything could be filtered through. And, I mean, we should come back to Bateson because he becomes really crucial in influencing some of the art that comes out of these sets of meetings because he was really someone who formalized the idea that consciousness itself was information as a part of this holistic idea of the system. Hutchison had this, this student and his brother, the, the known as the Harold and Eugene Odom, who wrote these fundamentals of ecologies textbooks in the 1950s. And they, of course, were they were working in, in the Anahuatlca Atolls with the American Department of Energy sort of doing, and the military doing nuclear tests where they were trying to figure how you could trace something like radiation through a local ecosystem. This was like some of the pioneering ideas of how you're trying to rationalize 
a natural system as a computer system. So that's that's how this idea of the computational ecosystem in the 50s and then you can start to see how how this idea surfaces in various places within a range of sciences. And so another way to kind of highlight this is you can look at well we're going to talk about Stuart Brand as one of the primary sort of spokespeople of, th- of what to do once you start thinking of informational systems and the environment. But what it would highlight is how this idea of thinking systems ecology played an important role for the biologist Paul Ehrlich, who of course wrote this deeply problematic book that was you know, also profoundly influential, Population Bomb, which was 1967, 1968, or no, was it, yeah, I believe so. Ehrlich taught Brand around this time in the 50s when Brand was at Stanford. And Brand then went and he moved to, after he went, he was drafted, I think, and after that went to the American Northeast where he was in New York. So he had exposure to this kind of ecological thinking about systems. And then he was then immersed in this New York art world in the 1960s where he started to encounter the work of people like John Cage and Robert Rosenberg, right? Yeah where you're starting to see how this idea of having humans being a part of a systemic environment is starting to take hold in aesthetics because that was really about dismantling these kind of hierarchies that were really present pre-Cold War thinking and trying to understand the human being as like you could enter say something like a happening or at the Black Mountain College you had John Cage you know sort of having these performances where you would have people enter into these uh, artistic environments with the idea of being within the environment, having your consciousness change because you're sort of, a, you're, you're an individual or like a local part of this like surrounding informational field. And if you can create the right conditions, you can start to reprogram individuals essentially. Was, was a part of the inspiration, or at least that's how historians try to think about that kind of artistic movement in New York in the 1960s, which Brand was was very interested in. So, okay, so what's interesting here is how you get to this image of the whole earth as a system, which became this kind of foundational idea for Brand's whole earth catalog and the sort of surrounding environmental movement that that pushed. So it's, it's important to highlight that I think the first photograph that you had of the whole planet was in 1966, and that was from a lunar orbiter that was not, or first it was from a weather satellite and then from a lunar orbiter. Neither of them had human beings on board. And these photographs were seen but weren't really taken too seriously. Like they didn't have the same kind of cultural resonance as what happened with the Apollo 8, right? This Earthrise image that's become so iconic and you still see reference to it in, you know, landmark environmental documentaries like The Inconvenient Truth, right? Still, you still see Earthrise as being this kind of unifying moment and there's a lot of reason to kind of pause on this and think about what that image did. First, a question that you can ask is why is it more important to people that you needed to have human beings on a spacecraft to take that photograph as opposed to just having a satellite do it? And the answer to that has to do with you needed you needed to have a kind of personal story of something like an astronaut getting on, you know, this techno-scientific achievement, this Cold War American techno-scientific achievement, and getting into orbit around the planet. And that's somehow about having a human being 
outside the planet and seeing the whole Earth as this kind of system made it resonate culturally. And an interesting thing about Brand, another sort of anecdote is, I, I forgot to mention this, but he was sitting on a roof of a building. He'd taken a big part of this kind of countercultural movement that was starting in California around kind of cybernetic legacies was drug experimentation. What they conceived as a kind of technological way to reorient their consciousness. And so he was, he was taking LSD on the roof of a building. He sort of looked at the curve of the earth and famously, he said, you know, why haven't we seen a photo of the whole Earth yet? And then he would write letters subsequently to both Buckminster Fuller and McLuhan and create all these pins, which were distributed nationwide. You know, why haven't we seen a photo of the whole Earth yet? And it would be the following year that you, that you had that image. The whole Earth image and how you kind of get this photograph that becomes, as the historian of science, Sheila Jasnoff, has, has argued this kind of moment of, you know, an American hegemonic trying to push this idea of a global eco-consciousness, right? This kind of idealized humanist thinking about everybody belonging to the same planet. And that, you know, like, you're, this is the beginnings of this discourse of a, a spaceship Earth that we're all on together. And that becomes a point of reflection because, yes, it displaces these traditional no notions of humanism, and it also starts to really give you this objective view of like what the earth means to protect as a system that upholds the conditions for human life. And there are all sorts of questions that you can start asking about this image, like why it was this American techno-scientific Cold War military project, and why it's from that history that you get this image of a global eco-consciousness, because it's one image of the earth amongst many, but we like to hold on to this one as being somehow um, the origins of a global environmentalist movement that, you know, should be thought about critically in retrospect, I think. So, yeah. what we're seeing happening is really under the impact of systems theory and cybernetics, is the world becomes understood and the human place in the world and the social order becomes understood as moments in complex systems That's right. rather than focusing primarily on individuals or in art practice on the creation of objects, specifically objects. So from Capro and the happenings through to Fluxus is a new way of exploring art as process and particularly through technological-based art, a concern, again, not with objects, but with interactions between right. users and the work. And as you say, the, the very much the American hegemony in what that image of Spaceship Earth represents is the success of American scientific technological hegemony. How does that then relate into a critical understanding, let's say, of climate modeling? Does that follow? Yeah, absolutely. So you can start to think about this, this moment as exactly that. When you start to look at the long history of how this idea of the whole Earth as a system has impacted you know, three specific things, understanding the Earth, the net, like its natural processes as a system, our communication processes as a system. So you can start to see that, I mean, Brand, of course, would be instrumental in developing these kind of techno-utopian ideals of the internet, which is a part of this entire culture, right, of thinking consciousness as a part of this holistic system. You start to see this logic play out that technology could change individual consciousness because we're all a part of this cosmic interacting system. 
play out when he moves from his work on environmentalism in the 60s more towards the 1980s when he becomes deeply involved in Silicon Valley and, well, the beginnings of Silicon Valley with his establishment of the Whole Earth Electronic Network, which is one of the precursors to the internet. He also does work with Douglas Engelbart, who sort of demos the prototype to the personal computer. So his whole thinking at this stage was, if part of his project was to introduce a kind of environmentalism where you could give people access to tools and knowledge, and he did this through his Whole Earth catalog in the 1960s, where you know suddenly communalists were moving out to the desert in California to sort of start up communes off basically living off the land using commercially acquired tools ordered through this catalog, you know, as a kind of response to the hierarchies of the state, you know, being able to sort of live live autonomously off the land by gaining access to the knowledge that you needed, like as though this book was itself like a kind of computer. And basically just rehashing aspects of the argument by the historian Fred Turner this really starts to lay this cultural framework for how he was thinking about personal computing starting in the 80s and then into the 90s where you know the idea that you could you could have a piece of technology like you could have a kind of piece of art you know sort of give you this flow of information and sort of shape your individual mind your consciousness as an equivalent to something like the information that you receive it it was it was it was there that you sort of had this idea that if everybody had computers and equal access to information that somehow that you could paint it in utopian hues that once you had access to this education like something like the internet that you could become like a bunch of micro eco communes and everyone could live sustainably within their own little small scale community bubbles and things didn't really work out that way because that assumption is really you can really start to see an echo between what kind of image was produced in the whole earth image in the 1960s and that kind of utopian impulse of individuals behind their computers that you get towards the 80s and the 90s, which is devoid of social context, cultural specificity, really steeped in abstracting and, and making assumptions about social inequality that were sort of within you know, the immediate surroundings of these developments. And one of the effects of that is you can start to think about how digital culture is assumed to be this completely immaterial thing, but it's completely bound up in global supply chains, inequality, mining of violently acquired minerals and, and recycling villages, and you know, not to mention, if you're looking in an American context, Superfund sites within Silicon Valley. So I mean, it, it's all about abstracting this kind of material reality. And you know, the work that that kind of humanistic idealism that was born out of that image sort of played out in technological thinking down the road. And so to get to a problem like climate modeling from that, I don't think is such a far leap. So there's a longer story here, and I can get into this if, if you'd like, about how part of the project that I've been working on is to talk about how some of the um, computer scientists who were working on the Manhattan Project, also in the Southwest, during the 50s and the 60s became vital to some of the first computational climate models that were developed throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like Many of the first supercomputers used that were first trying to understand the whole Earth as a system were used to model things like atmospheric transport of radiation from these atomic tests that the American military was using. 
but so that's that's a longer story to say that these days when you talk about what image of the planet you get undergoing anthropogenic climate change do you have an extension of that kind of abstracted thinking about local on the ground cultural material specificity with a material reality that's unfolding as we're as we're seeing it an example i can think of that is like, something that i've been working on is this is fascinating film by an Canadian, well, an Inuit filmmaker named Zacharias Kunuk. It's called Inuit Knowledge and Climate Change. And it was produced, I think, in 2010. And the filmmakers went around to four different communities in, quite geographically removed from one another, you know, in, in Nunavut, which is, you know, one of the territories located in the northern part of Canada. What's happening is a kind of series of interviews with Inuit elders who are sort of talking about their experiences over the second half of the 20th century and how they've seen material impacts on the land, be it through ice, be it through migration patterns of animals. You know, even, even, there's even arguments being made there about optics and how increased temperatures are changing the way that light works in the Arctic. And what happens with this film is the, the filmmakers go to Copenhagen to the Copenhagen Climate Agreements and start showing it to climate scientists. And climate scientists respond immediately by saying that this is dangerous, this kind of production of knowledge, because it undermines their narrative of how, of how to represent an object like climate change, which is traditionally, as we've seen, through these kind of models that are very abstract and they give us these kind of, you know, two degrees centigrade, um, you know, as like one of the figures that often gets thrown around of, of what we're trying to avoid through international treaties. But that figure doesn't actually exist anywhere, not in any one given place on the planet. And it means extraordinarily different things in different cultural locations. And I would argue that that kind of thinking of a kind of one-worldism, a kind of high-minded elitism that comes out of some climate change representational strategies is this kind of conceptual descendant of that whole earth moment that you get in 1968, where you still retain this kind of abstracted relationship to cultural experience, socially embedded existence, and how that's defined by various inequalities depending on the culture and the history that we're talking about. So I mean, there's one sort of concrete example of how you can think about the representational strategies for climate change and how they really bank on this tradition of a global eco-consciousness that starts in the 60s. You put it very well. Okay. Um, covered an enormous swathe of intellectual history. Maybe to come back to a particular work, mm -hmm. and it's a work that has been done as part of Watershed and Fakugesi, the African Digital Innovation Festival we have here at WITS. And it's a work that's sitting in the entrance yard of the Shemolchon complex, as you know, down in Duta Street. And Thomas and I were looking at it yesterday. And it's a work by Brian House. I think it's, it's a remarkable work because in many ways it meditates and engages and plays with the themes that, that we've been talking about now. And it consists of an arrangement of large laboratory bottles, glass laboratory bottles. And they filled with toxic water, actual toxic water that's a result of the mining processes in the area. 
And what the artist has done is he's rigged up a monitor of the toxicity in these, these containers of water. And the monitor both tracks the toxicity of the water in the containers and is also interpreting a feed from the monitors that VIT scientists, water scientists, have in the dams containing enormous volumes of, this. it's called acid, mine waste. Potentially a huge environmental and social problem here in, in Gauteng. And what the artist Brian House has done is he's he rigged up these, this data so that it creates an audio. And around the base of these experimental jars are speakers. And the speakers are directly translating that data as audio. And it's a low, rattling sound. And what's really interesting to me is the artist is now left. <laughs> he had to go back, back home to the USA. And his work continues to harvest data and to turn that into audio. And the audio, I believe, is going to change as that acid water in the, in the containers starts to sediment with, with, with all the toxins in it. And over the course of the next two weeks, the, presumably the audio signal that this is generating is, is going to change over time. So in many ways it represents art as an engagement with a process rather than an object. And most intriguingly to me, where the artist withdraws from the work, but the work continues to change in response to the environmental conditions within the work and beyond the work in the, in the acid drainage dams. So I wondered if you wanted to comment on that work in relation to yeah, what you're talking about in your research. So just to come back to our kind of our longer conversation about someone like McLuhan was reading people like, you know, just, just like a final sort of footnote on this, um, on this history of thinking about how the earth becomes a whole system. He was reading people like Teilhard de Chardin, who gave us this concept of, of the new sphere, right? This idea that communication technology could kind of link everybody's consciousness in a, in a global sense. And it was McLuhan sort of started to think about what it meant once communication was globally networked through technological devices. For better or worse, I mean, he's, he made some great assumptions in his own philosophical work that we, you know, we don't have to get into, but one, you know, one thing that we can kind of take from that is that you know, I don't really know if we have something like an idea of nature left. We've got technology that is so fundamentally imbricated with the landscape, but also in our modes of communication and perceiving nature. That becomes a kind of entry point for thinking about how art can represent something like an environmental problem. And so, yeah, this is a fascinating example because you have this networked way of kind of translating and thinking about an environmental problem. Having the artist removed at some point gives the system itself this kind of autonomy. And so I, I guess I'm just thinking about it. And what's intriguing to me is that I'm always interested in how kind of a technological or aesthetic formation 
emerges from a locality and like thinking about how you source something like the technology needed to to make that. And so I, I would be interested to know more about where the speakers came from and where the where the wiring came from and how exactly that's working and how that and where those bottles come from and it's like and the entire kind of process of making and why that's so tied to a very specific place and time and landscape. I, I'm not quite sure because it doesn't sound like the artist upon leaving really maintains control of the piece, right? Like it becomes this kind of full expression of a landscape as this deteriorated form that is really crossed by technological use, right? Like if it's if it's the mining or if it's the communication network or if it's how those electronic devices, you know, maintain a, a kind of production history that's that's close to mining or it was reliant on mining itself it becomes this kind of autonomous reflection of a problem. Does that make sense? Is yes. that, like an art? I can tell you the artist because I, I saw him doing it. He found everything in the area. Yeah. You know, the electronics were locally sourced and most interesting the glass, the large glass jars were in fact abandoned laboratory equipment that had been put in storeroom or underneath some stairs yeah. in one of the science institutes of Wits and he found these and built the entire installation around that. And I think what's also intriguing is the title he's given the work, which is Acid Love, <laughs> which is, uh, I think, a deliberately uh, provocative and ironic title for a work that is monitoring and expressing through sound signal, through audio signal, a highly toxic waste. So I, I guess sort of my interest in thinking about aesthetics and sort of locality is how you get around something like a problem that is abstracting the global and sort of not thinking with regional specificity and trying to figure out a way to think both of those at once and for, for better or worse. And so it would be interesting to think about that piece in terms of what it took to bring that sort of into into creation and if it was like going around and finding all these pieces and sort of bringing them together and having that be a reflection of the history of mining and how that's involved in supply chains from, you know, Johannesburg's history, but also the kinds of things like the travel the artist needed to take to get here or, you know, the kinds of communication that needed to be set up in advance, like whether that's via email or messaging or what kinds of networks it relied on in order to have this idea come into being. And it's you kind of get a portrait that it's a highly local event, but it's something that's also dependent on a kind of global thinking. And how to find a framework that lets you think about those two things at once is a difficult task. I think about finding a method to try and talk about how the local links to the global in a kind of socially responsible way is, a, is, is part of what my work is trying to develop. Let's open up to questions, Ken. Hi, uh, my name is Ken Kaplan. I'm from the Film and TV Division. Um, I was just responding, picking up something in that question you, the, the comment about the film, the Inuit yeah. film, and that the scientists said that the sort of this view didn't fit with their predictive modeling of mm -hmm. climate change and stuff like that. So, is that sort of rooted in some kind of dystopian view of? how these systems interact with data and technology. And when you look back at stuff like the whole Earth Catalog, which seems founded in a very sort of utopian view mm -hmm. of these systems, 
are there signs there of a failure for, for the data sets and the systems to explain the humanism of man and humanity living with nature and in these environments? Just to clarify, you're asking that already back in the 60s, do you have a kind of failure to think about how to communicate what the data finds, or is it something that's within the way the data is being mathematically produced itself? A failure to find a way that these two things can interact with one another. Right. And that perhaps there are limitations in terms of the use of the sort of system theory to explain that overlap between science and data and human expression and consciousness and all these things. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. The way I think about what this kind of dominant history of expressing the planet as a system, where I think it really fails, is precisely on a communication level. There's a couple ways you can start to think about this. If we want to talk about whether the modeling itself is the problem or if it's the communication of the science and what the relationship is between the two things. To answer this, what I'm going to say is a fundamental problem in my field of media studies is that there have been two veins of scholarship that are dominant. One is thinking about representation, the other is about technological history. And an emergent criticism of the field is that there's very few people who think between those two modes. Why is that a problem for a field that takes itself as thinking between how you represent something and how technologies have histories that impact people? So one example that I can think of is, yeah, Tara McPherson has an article about the development of Unix at mid-century and how it relied on this kind of modular programming that was really reflective of a cultural thinking about uh, humanism and idealism at the time about you could kind of like take an object and fit it into anything with while sort of forgetting the the broader context that you could take an object and relate it to something else like these developments of unix and in her argument she'll say you know you see that kernel of logic in something like iOS or on your iPhone, like we've inherited that kind of modular thinking about software. But what she points out is that at the time in California where this research was ongoing, you can't forget the social context, which was right in the midst of the civil rights movement, and that you had this kind of historical movement at once that really relied on a kind of thinking from in an American context, an overt racism to a more covert, socially embedded, and structural one that relied on the same logic of modularity. And so her argument is to say that it's not these computer scientists were being sort of explicitly racist in reflecting their coding with a kind of cultural transformation that was surrounding it, but it's to ask, you know, what kinds of analysis do you need to talk about how representation and technological development are deeply intertwined processes that you, you need a method to kind of talk about that. And to say in the 1960s, when you're conceiving of something like the whole earth, to talk about it through that method is a very intriguing project to me. Because, I mean, if we're talking just specifically about, say, the imaging of the whole earth from Apollo 8, it just seems to me to be this very hypocritical moment to talk about this as being, you know, 
the beginning of an environmental global eco-consciousness when the United States is destabilizing countries all around the world throughout the Cold War. It's not, you know, it, it seems to be about pushing this ideology of one-worldism and, you know, at the same time trying to forget that it was a part of this Cold War techno-scientific project that was really a source of a great many historical violences. And if we deal with the kind of outcome of that thinking of trying to diagnose the, you know, how the whole world works as a system, you can continue to tell this story and it resolves in ideas like the Gaia hypothesis by James Lovelock, which was you know, a cybernetic idea. He was originally called the biofeedback cybernetic homeostasis system was his idea of the earth as being this organicist autonomous organism basically that's been legitimated by earth system science most recently and so you can see how these histories have made their way into really widely accepted ideas and it's important to sort of reflect on the history and say you know what was being imagined and what was being described when we when we took these projects on and sort of what were their social contexts and their their ways in which those social contexts are embedded in both that representation of the whole earth and the technology and sort of knowledge that that technology enabled. Thomas, thank you very much. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, and my guest, Thomas Pringle, a Brown Presidential Fellow and PhD candidate with the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University. This is part of an ongoing series of discussions, seminars and workshops under the theme New Concepts, New Challenges, New Formats, envisaging the creative work PhD in an African research university. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew F. Mellon Foundation as part of their funding for the Arts Research Africa project. The song used in this podcast is Decompress by Lee Rosvier, licensed by Creative Commons Attribution 3.0.